Welcome back to Sideline Exposure. I'm your host, Mitchell Crossan, and this is Exposure 119. We are back in the SEC, and this week we are talking Georgia football, the reigning national champs who finally got over the hump, defeated Nick Saban in Alabama, and took home their third national championship. Their previous two came in 1942 and 1980, so it had been quite a while before they finally got another one in 2021. Georgia does have two Heisman Trophy winners, and then in total they have won over 850 games, which nearly places them in the top 10 all-time. But for the most part, this is a program that has very high expectations and has done fairly well. I do want to dive into their head coaches, and most notably since the modern day has taken over. So we'll start with Mark Richt. I feel that it's important to start with Mark before diving into Kirby Smart in the present day because Mark allowed this to happen. So I want to go ahead and start with him. He played college football at Miami as a quarterback, but his college playing days ended and he decided, you know what, I want to become a coach. So he began his coaching career at Florida State as a graduate assistant. And he had a relationship with their head coach, Bobby Bowden, stemming to high school when Mark was being recruited as a quarterback to go to Florida State. He was with the Seminoles as a GA until 1989. Then he moved on to East Carolina to become their offensive coordinator, but he only stayed here for one year before heading back to Florida State to become their quarterback's coach. He stayed in this role until being promoted to their offensive coordinator in 1994, staying as their OC for seven years. And they were actually very successful under Mark. The Seminoles ranked in the nation's top five scoring offense, top 12 of total offense, and top 12 passing offense for five seasons out of the seven that he was their offensive coordinator. So now Mark was hired on as the Georgia head coach for the 2001 season and stayed here until 2015, so he had a nice long tenure. During this time, Mark won two SEC championships in 2002 and 2005, six SEC East Division titles with the last one coming in 2012, and nine bowl games. The 2002 SEC Championship was the first outright conference championship since 1982, so it started off with a bang. But Mark wasn't a great head coach. He was just a good head coach. And so overall at Georgia, he went 145-51. and 51. Now, to put this in perspective a little bit more, if you look at Nick Saban and what he's done in 15 seasons with Alabama, he's gone 178-25. and 25. Not that I want to compare Mark to Nick Saban, who's the greatest college football coach ever, but winning 145 games and only losing 51 is really not that bad. And at the end of his tenure, or when he was starting to slip just a little bit, Georgia fans were upset. They wanted him gone, and ultimately, he was fired. Georgia never won a national championship under Mark, but they just kind of floated around in that gray area of just being a good program that could compete, but never great. So following a 9-3 regular season in 2015, Georgia dismissed Mark Richt. And it felt like Georgia's best days were behind them a little bit, and they hadn't won the SEC East division title, for which was now three seasons in a row, including that 2015 season, especially in that side of the SEC, which the SEC West has been known for being stacked, the SEC East has been known for being a little weak. So at this point in time, Georgia focuses on their next hire, Alabama defensive coordinator Kirby Smart. And this became official in December of 2015, and the general consensus was that this was a good hire. 
at Alabama, Kirby's defense finished in the top seven nationally in points allowed per game every year since he took over as the full-time defensive coordinator for the Crimson Tide in 2008. He was probably the most sought-after assistant coach in the country, and this seemed like the only hire Georgia was really going to make. Apparently, they were just gunning for him and only him since they determined that it was time to make a head coaching change. So I would say right now, so far so good with this hire. And some people were a little skeptical at first just because Kirby Smart hadn't been a head coach. But that's part of rolling the dice with a head coach like Kirby Smart. If you hire them to be your head coach, you find a guy that is an up-and-coming assistant, kind of like Tom Herman was when he was at Ohio State and then Houston got a hold of them and then Texas got a hold of them. You try to find the next up-and-coming assistant you get that guy on his way up, and they can really change your program in a positive way. That's what Georgia is trying to do with Kirby Smart here. So let's take a look at Kirby's seasons at Georgia thus far. 2016 was his very first year, and they went 8-5 and five with a win in the Liberty Bowl. Not a great start, but again, it's only one year, so there isn't cause to be concerned. 2017 was a great year and kind of a bittersweet year, if you will. For Georgia, going 13 and two with a win over Oklahoma in the college football playoff semifinal, going on to take an L to Alabama in that national championship game, which we know is forever cemented in Alabama's legacy. Subbing out Jalen Hurts, their starting quarterback at halftime, bringing in Tua Tagovailoa, who gave that offense a spark. But ultimately, Georgia was in that game, and it felt like they were going to win that game, especially after they sack Tua late in the game and then the very next play Alabama throws a touchdown pass game over but Georgia was right there in Kirby Smart's second season to not only beat Bama but to win the national championship so now 2018 11 and 3 with a loss in the Sugar Bowl 2019 12 and 2 with a win in the Sugar Bowl 2020 8 and 2 with a win in the Peach Bowl and 2021 14 and 1 with a win in the college football playoff semifinal over Michigan, and then obviously the win over Alabama in the national championship. So clearly, the 2017 and 2021 seasons stand out with the playoff appearances and national championship appearances, and most notably, winning it all last year. How do you get to this point to consistently make the playoff, to consistently compete for championships? Well, obviously, you need coaching you need to develop players, you need the facilities, and now with the current market for college athletes, and most notably football players with NIL, you got to be able to fork over the funds. But the biggest thing is the recruiting. you got to go out and get the top talent to come play for your program. Now, this was never a huge issue for Georgia. They were consistently pulling in top 10 classes for a while. But then in 2018, and this was a breakout year for them, Per 24-7 Sports, they pulled in the number one recruiting class. This was the class that included Justin Fields. But then they also signed seven five-stars, and that's including Justin Fields, in that class. So that's a huge haul for Georgia. And this was before NIL. Now, I'm not saying that there, there were or there weren't deals being made under the table, but this wasn't like Texas A&M this last year in 2021, where all of a sudden... They pulled in the number one recruiting class in the country because all of a sudden they're paying kids. Georgia was able to pull in a class with seven five stars that included Justin Fields. That was a really great class for them. 
And this is all working towards the goal of beating Alabama in Nick Saban. And if you're able to do that, you're either going to win the national championship or you're going to put yourself in a really good position to win it all. Now, it starts with recruiting. Alabama is the king. They've been known to consistently pull in the number one recruiting class almost every year. Now we've seen Georgia do it. We've seen A&M do it. We'll see other schools maybe do it, other programs do it with NIL. We'll see what kind of impact that has. But Alabama not only has the best coach, some of the best facilities, but they had the best players. That was why they're so dominant. So if you want to beat Alabama, you have to recruit either at the level that they're recruiting at or recruit better than them. And this is step one, pulling in the number one class. Not only is it better than anybody else in the country, but most notably, it's better than Alabama's class. And they didn't just do this for 2018. In 2019, they pulled in the number two ranked class. And then in 2020, they pulled in the number one ranked class again. So this is a very important three-year recruiting run for Georgia because now they have stockpiled damn near the best talent for three years in a row. And it's not like if you just pull in the best recruiting class in the country for one year, let's just say they pulled it in for 2021. And then if you play Alabama six months later, that's not going to have a huge effect for your program for that game. Those guys are freshmen. Those guys are 18 years old. If they even play, would they have an impact in that game against Alabama? No, they wouldn't. That's why it's so important to continually bring in top-tier talent for multiple years in a row. Because if you bring in a guy in the 2018 class that's a five-star, maybe he doesn't develop and turn into the player that he's supposed to be until his junior year. That's when you see it start to click, and that's when you put together a really good team, a team that can beat Alabama. Now, it's not like they didn't have talent before, right? We just talked about how they made the college football playoff in 2017 and damn near won it all. They probably could have won it all that year if it weren't for the craziness that unfolded in that second half of that game. But they just have a little bit more talent now. And clearly, they just needed something to push them over the edge a little bit. And they finally got that last year. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and bring us to the present day. And we're going to talk about this previous season for Georgia. And we're going to start with the offense, which we know wasn't the strength of this Georgia team. But in the end, it just proved to be good enough. Starting quarterback Stenson Bennett received a lot of crap throughout the year, actually, because I even said it felt like he was just a game manager at quarterback. He's not a dual threat. It felt like he wasn't a guy that was going to go out there and win you a big time game. For the season, he threw for 2,862 yards and 29 touchdowns. And then they had a couple different running backs in the rotation, but their leading rusher was Zamir White, rushing for 856 yards and 11 touchdowns. So they felt very average on offense. They threw for 259 yards per game, which ranked 56th overall, and 190 rushing yards per game, which ranked 37th overall per Fox Sports. Now, again, with their quarterback, Stenson Bennett, I was kind of hard on him throughout the year. A lot of people in the media were hard on him throughout the year, but he showed up and made some huge throws in the national championship game, improved in that second half that not only was he not going to be the reason why they lose that game, but maybe, maybe even be part of the reason why they win that game. So he proved a lot of people, including myself, wrong. Now, on the flip side of the ball, clearly 
defensively, this is what made this team so great. In the 15 games played, Georgia's defense gave up an average of 8.8 points per game, which is just absurd. That's just dominance. And this team was blowing people out every week. They did lose their one game to Alabama in the SEC Championship, where Bryce Young and Jameson Williams connected for a lot of yards. Jameson Williams just tore them up over the middle, and so they did kind of get a little bit of an awakening, which is probably exactly what they needed. But to add that game in, and still your defense only gave up 8.8 points per game, I mean, with your offense, you really just have to do just enough. And that was the story for Georgia for most of the year. Now, I found an interesting article per the dog post, which goes on to put into perspective how elite this defense really was. A lot of people were on record saying that this was the best defense we've seen in 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know about that. It was definitely really good. Was it the absolute best? I'm not sure. We'd have to look at the some of the advanced metrics and see for ourselves. Alabama has had some really good defenses. But the point is, this stat was interesting. The dog post, they would deduct the garbage time scores, or aka the meaningless scores, which come in late in the game. You know, Georgia's up by a couple scores, and they've removed their first string starters. They're on the bench, and you could see their opponent go down and score a touchdown against the second string or the third string. Georgia blew out a lot of their opponents along the way during the season last year. And so what the dog post did is that in the game where Georgia was up by four scores or more, and when the opposing team scored in the final moments of that game, they removed those scores. They said these are meaningless, which they are. Let's remove these and let's get a new true average of points allowed by the starting defense. Because at this point in these games, you're not going to have your first string defense playing. Once they removed that metric, this brings the average down from 8.8 points per game to 6.3 points per game. So in theory, even in the games where Georgia is blowing out their opponents, if they left their first string defense in, we think they would have averaged only 6.3 points per game. And that being Georgia's opponents, and if you can hold your opponent to only scoring one touchdown per game, it really puts your offense in a really easy and comfortable spot to not feel the pressure of it's going to be a shootout. We're going to have to score 40 points per game, even though we have a quarterback who may not be equipped to throw for 300 or 400 yards per game. And at a program like Georgia, they have good talent. Sure, maybe they don't have this crazy offense that's going to put up 40 points a game. But if you have a really good defense where you know, hey, our Offense is really struggling to move the ball. We keep punting. We haven't scored yet in the first half. Having that confidence in your defense that more likely than anything, they're going to get a defensive stop that can help you focus on just get the ball moving on offense. At some point, you're going to score. You're going to gain some traction. You're going to hang on to your game plan. Something's going to work. It's like if you're shooting threes. Granted, you don't want to just be throwing them up there. But if you keep shooting, one of them is going to go in at some point. If you have a really good defense that's going to keep you in the game, the offense is going to gain some traction eventually, especially with the players and the coaching that Georgia has. So let's talk quickly a little bit about the recruiting and future of the program. Georgia finished with third-ranked class for 2022 and currently has the seventh-ranked class for 2023. They have a commitment from five-star corner A.J. Harris, 
who is the number 25 player nationally. So that's a very nice pickup for Georgia. And I believe he was their first five-star commitment in the class of 2023. Now, there's still a lot of time left to build the rest of that class. And so seventh is fine. If you're in the top 10, you're in a pretty good position at this point to continue on working on filling out the rest of that class. It's going to be interesting to see a program like Georgia, how the recruiting classes pan out over these next, let's say, three or four seasons. Because as we know, and we mentioned this earlier in this pod, Texas A&M pulled in the number one recruiting class for 2021. Not Alabama, not Georgia, not Ohio State, not Clemson. A&M, who always has good athletes, has good coaches, so it's not an absolute shocker. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they pull in the number one recruiting class because of what? Name, image, and likeness. The deals that they're able to promise these players, these commits. Now, they say that they had it. Head coach Jimbo Fisher says he doesn't know anything about NIL. And I truly believe him. I believe he is not involved. I believe he has his hands off of it. But it's one of those things where he probably tells you know their boosters or whoever it is that's making these promises, collectives, etc. He tells them that he doesn't want to know. Because that way, if someone says, hey, did you know this happened? He can genuinely honestly say no i didn't know what's happening now he's a he's a smart guy he's not a dumb coach he understands what's going on but he wants to be purposely left in the dark so that he can truthfully honestly say i don't know what's going on and with nil the schools themselves can't offer these nil programs or money to these recruits to these high school players it has to be a collective or someone outside associated with the university that's not directly within the athletic department. So we'll see what Georgia is able to do on the NIL front and with their recruiting. I think they'll be fine. They have money. They have boosters. They're in the South. There's lots of boosters down South. There's money down South. There's a lot of oil money in Texas, and that's important because that's going to make a difference, especially we've seen that already with the Aggies. But I think for the most part, it's going to work out for Georgia. Now, are they going to have a streak like they did in 2018, 2019, 2020, where they pulled in two of the number one recruiting classes and a number two? I don't know. I don't know if they have the funds to bring that in. I wonder if things will change a little bit once we get some more regulation and guidelines put in place with NIL. Then we could be on a more even playing field with these programs down south, the oil money in Texas, and then programs up north, most notably Ohio State, who has money, who has boosters, but probably doesn't have a booster that can fork over $13 million or whatever that Ryan Day said is going to be needed in order to keep his program intact. With Georgia, they're going to get good players. They're going to consistently continue pulling in top recruits. They're going to offer money. They're going to be fine in the NIL race, but I don't know if they're going to be able to keep pulling in number one recruiting classes while NAL is still kind of the Wild West. Looking ahead to next season, obviously Georgia lost 15 players to the NFL draft. They broke the record 14, tied with Ohio State and LSU. So obviously they lost a lot of talent. They are in the SEC East, so they are not in the same division as Alabama, LSU, and Texas A&M, and I think that's important. The SEC East is a little bit more on the weaker side. Not that it's a cakewalk, especially after you lose 15 players to the NFL draft. 
But I think the biggest problem for Georgia is just if they're able to win the SEC East division, just meeting Alabama in the championship game, assuming divisions are still a thing at this point. Alabama is going to be really good. They're returning Bryce Young, the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. And then defensively, they're returning Will Anderson, who is a freak. He's an edge rusher. He had 17 sacks last year. He's going to be the first non-quarterback player that's drafted in next year's draft. He could put together a Heisman campaign. I just don't think any program in the country is going to be able to block Will Anderson. So for Georgia, it's going to be, you're probably going to meet Alabama. And when you do, figure out how to block Will Anderson and figure out how to slow down Bryce Young. Okay, so that concludes this episode of Sideline Exposure. You can follow us on our social medias at Sideline Expose on Twitter and then at Sideline Exposure on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Thank you for listening. And as always, go Bucks.